Good morrow, everyone. Welcome to This Week in Mormons. We're thrilled to have you with us once again this week. Uh, today, Jared Gillins and I have the opportunity to interview Benjamin E. Park, author of Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, which explores the evolution of Nauvoo as a city and a religious experiment. Nauvoo means many things to many people. Uh, to Latter-day Saints in the 1840s, it represented a reprieve, a salvation from the troubles that befell them in Missouri. At first, the locals in Illinois were warm and accommodating toward the saints. But as the Mormons grew in size and political influence, so too did an animosity toward what to many outsiders appeared to be a theocracy at odds with American democracy, particularly as the practice of polygamy quietly grew and Nauvoo's municipal courts shielded Joseph Smith from extradition and other legal actions. It's a fascinating take on a landmark period of Latter-day Saint history made possible by newly available resources. So what lessons can we learn from this period? How do we react to uncomfortable truths about venerated Latter-day Saint leaders? How can we apply this knowledge going forward? Why does this matter to us? That's what we want to talk about today. Benjamin E. Park received his BA in English and History from Brigham Young University, a Master's in Science in Historical Theology from the University of Edinburgh's School of Divinity, and his Master's of Philosophy in Political Thought and PhD in History from the University of Cambridge. After serving as the inaugural postdoctoral fellow at the University of Missouri's Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy, he has been an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University. His scholarly articles have been published by over a dozen academic journals, including Church History, Journal of the American Academy of Religion, Journal of the Early Republic, Early American Studies, and Journal of American Studies. And his popular essays have appeared in national venues ranging from the Washington Post to Newsweek. He has served on the executive boards for the Mormon History Association and Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, and is currently the co-editor of Mormon Studies Review. Park's first book, American Nationalism's Imagining Union in the Age of Revolutions, was published by Cambridge University Press and was a finalist for the Lasky Prize in Political History. And he is the editor of the forthcoming textbook, A Companion to American Religious History, published by Wiley Blackwell. Ben Park, thank you very much for being here with us this week. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. I do. I guess I have to almost issue a disclosure. We found out as I was uh, emailing you to do this that we are both alumni of the University of Edinburgh, which in, endears you to me. Oh, me good. Well, we, we are part of a great fraternity. Yes, we are. But I, I feel like it makes it so I can't be treat you objectively as a subject. So I might just have to let Jared do most of the heavy lifting this week because there's just no way... <laughs> I can't. I automatically think you're awesome because we went to the best school. So that's good times. Well, the best we'll try to school, that part in. of the best ward. It's it's just the best of everything. I don't know if it was the best ward, but it's nice of you to have that opinion <laughs> about the time we spent there. I just remember about like 20 missionaries in one ward and they thought they ran everything. But that's neither here, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Anyway, so terrific book uh, that we're talking about this week, Kingdom of Nauvoo. Uh, which is the story of, as it says, the subtitle, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. I greatly enjoyed this book. Well, thank you. I, it's That's wonderful to hear from some, you know, you work on these projects for such a long time, and then you just fling it out to the world, and you're anxious to hear what uh, the reaction is. So hearing this positive feedback is always uh, worth the price of the entire project. I imagine. How, how long did you work on it anyway? Uh, I think it took about three years from wow. from uh, start to finish there, which is faster than a lot of projects and a lot faster than my first book. But this project, for a variety of reasons, uh, allowed me to do it at a bit of a faster clip. 
Okay. Well, it must be hard though to even to gauge that. I'm, I'm in your. Uh, I can't remember if it was at the end in the acknowledgments or if it was in the beginning, but you mentioned that you know you'd done a study abroad. Uh, or not, you know, a BYU study at uh, Nauvoo and that you kind of began conceiving of the book even back then. So you've spent three years like intensively on the book, right? but, you, but I, I've been, been in your brain for much longer than that. Right. I've been writing in my head for a long time. It was, it was just aching to come out. That's really cool. I love, I love when you have like that, you know, that seed planted and it uh, turns into something. Right. It, it at least makes all those uh, long walks of thinking worth it anyway. And uh, now, now you, you mentioned that, of course, there are like newly available sources that made this book possible where it might not have been otherwise possible. Can you speak to that? What, what's, what's changed out there that allowed this book to come to light as opposed to other books that have been about the saints history in Nauvoo? Sure. Over the last decade, uh, historians of Mormonism have been uh, greatly uh, lucky and blessed because the LDS church who holds a majority of the records, obviously, for early Mormonism, uh, has been increasingly uh, accommodating and inclusive in what they enabled uh, scholars to see. A large part of this is because of the Josma Papers Project, who uh, have been doing great work. And through their great work, they've mm-hmm. been able to build relationships with church leaders and being able to demonstrate that more transparency is not uh, to be a detriment to the faith, but <laughs> can actually be a, a strength. And perhaps the best example of that was in 2013, the church announced that they were going to release through the Joe Smith Papers Project, the Council of 50 Minutes. Now, for those who aren't familiar, the Council of 50 is an organization Joe Smith uh, set up uh, the last few months of his life. We can get more detail about that later. But the minutes from these meetings had been both highly intense, anticipated and highly restricted ever since the mo- moment of their creation. Uh, these were the documents that had lots of legends and myths about them for decades of people speculating what could be in there. Uh, and the church never let any skeptical or faithful historians get a glimpse at them until 2013. They announced that they were going to release them. And then 2016, they published them as a volume in the Joseph Papers Project. And I, as a historian of religion and politics, I mean, this was this was groundbreaking. This was uh, in my understanding, the most potent expression of democratic discontent in early America. And I immediately saw not just their significance to LDS history, but their significance to American religious history more broadly. And it was uh, from the moment I set eyes on those minutes, I decided then and there I was going <laughs> to write a book that kind of talks about the long lead up to that council, why it existed, what it tells us about broader America, and then what happens afterwards. So, so in reality, the the release of those minutes, and then there's, of course, a number of other uh, documents that have been released as well, but it was the release of those minutes that was, in a very tangible way, the origin story for this project. Fascinating. And so you mentioned the Council of 50. I, Jared, did you have a question? Sorry. Oh, well, you can go ahead. I'll, I'll ask my question next. Well, I was mostly going to say, you mentioned the Council of 50, which I think a lot of Latter-day Saints might not be familiar with the Council of 50. I mean, during the early era of the church, many different councils and groups were organized and disbanded and what have you. Obviously, we didn't have the same uh, structure that we have today, for example. I mean, even today, they do things like quietly dissolve the separate first and second quorums of the 70, and now just call them general authority 70s and don't say much about it. But the Council of 50 was a very 
interesting thing. And I don't know if we want to jump too far ahead, but can you explain its significance? Sure. By 1844, Joseph Smith had about given up faith in the democratic system, both in principle as well as in practice. He'd already burned a lot of bridges with the state political parties and the federal government was not willing to step in. And so Joseph Smith decided, well, we need to have some contingency plans. And one of those contingency plans was both organizing a potential migration to Western settlements, as well as establishing a uh, government system that would be able to address their wrongs and their problems. And uh, the Council of 50 was meant to be that. So in early March, 1844, Joe Smith gathers his closest advisors around and they organize, in their words, a theocracy um, where the governor man ruled by the voice of humanity had only resulted in chaos and fracturing and, and violence and oppression. And the only way to restore order to the world, they believe, was to give authority back to the voice of God. And so they even write up a new constitution that they believe was going to replace the American constitution as well as all different world governments. And this new constitution, or at least the portions that they were able to draft before scrapping the project entirely, um, emphasized that God was a source of all sovereignty, that prophetic leaders held the authority to act as mediators, and that uh, religion and, and state were supposed to be merged as the only way to make sure that everyone will be able to get equal rights. Now, this Council of 50 is obviously radical. It's, uh, in my uh, argument in the book, it's the most radical religious and political proposal in antebellum America. But I also saw in it uh, reflections of the broader society, because while in 2020 America, we take democracy for granted, that as divided as we are, we are in agreement that the best solutions are by returning the voice to the people. Um, in 1840s, democracy was still an experiment, and there were many people, not just the Mormons, wondering if democracy was a lost cause, and that if if possible, we might need to turn to another system of governance. And you see people arguing for abolition or women's suffrage or a host of other issues, raising the question, maybe the Constitution has run its course and it's time for something new and specifically something that is based on eternal laws of equality or whatnot. And so the Mormon Council of 50 is perhaps the most radical expression of that. Um, but, but I think it's important to note how much of an American story it is, even if sometimes we have difficulty even seeing it as a Mormon story. So, yeah, I like, I, I think that's a really good summation of, of I think probably one of the, the largest overarching points of the book. It's a theme you keep coming back to. Um, and one of the questions I had was, and you, and I think you've already kind of hinted at this, but could this scenario have played out any other way given the time, like, you know, based on, you know, the understanding and interpretation of the constitution, uh, the the political culture and other culture in antebellum antebellum United States um, could this have played out differently, or was it sort of a foregone conclusion that this was how the saints would have been treated? <clears throat> Yeah, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion at all. I think there are several points in Nauvoo where history could have gone a different direction. One of the purposes for history, I, I think, is to show that not everything was predetermined and that they're all a result of contingent decisions and actions and personalities and whatnot. Because when the Mormons arrived in Illinois and they established Nauvoo and they're trying to set up their city of God as a city-state, um, they weren't will ready to give up on democracy. They thought democracy was flawed. They thought democracy had uh, resulted in a lot of uh, problems for them and their community, but they thought democracy could still be saved. 
happened. And uh, they set out on a number of experiments in Nauvoo in their minds to try to save the democratic system in a way that could preserve the rights as them, in their minds, a minority religious group. Um, and it wasn't uh, until several years later, after Joseph Smith and the leading and other saints made certain decisions that did not win a lot of friends, and after a number of non-Mormon neighbors decided to react or act out in certain ways, that and after the both state and federal government decide that they're not going to intervene because they're either unable or unwilling to participate in local matters. It was only after all of those actions that the saints decided, okay, the only thing left at our disposal is to establish a theocratic government. And I, so again, what my book tries to show is that this was not a, a predetermined trajectory toward theocracy, but instead a result of a number of episodes, a number of arguments, a number of disagreements, and a number of different misunderstandings and accusations that end up uh, that result in this very uh, radical proposal that took place in the Council of Fifty. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's a good perspective. Um, kind of a follow-on to that. Then I, this is. Um, drawing on those same ideas. And I, I'm sorry to spoil the very end of the book. I, I guess history doesn't really have spoilers. They, they leave Nauvoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, I love your, your, the last couple of sentences um, kind of drive that point home. And I love, it, it says, even if their solutions only brought more problems, the struggles highlight real questions concerning democratic rule. If we are to account for the full history of American democracy, we must give voice not only to its victors, but also to its discontents. But that, going back to that that second to last que- the sentence where it says that highlights real questions concerning democratic rule. Are, are those questions and concerns about democratic rule, are those, are those still present? Are we still falling short? You, as a historian, kind of looking back, what do you see reflected in the present? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if we've uh, take for granted the certitude that democracy is the best uh, uh, form of political governance, um, we're still dealing with there's problems of democracy. And that's not to say that it's a flawed system, but that it's just a real system filled with humans. And that's going to result in some unexpected implications. I think uh, one of the root problems of democracy that we still face today is how do we preserve the rights of of individuals if they might be in minority groups when majoritarian voices might disagree with those or have a predilection to uh, to over uh, overrule them. I mean, in recent years, we had issues over LGBT issues or mm-hmm. over racial issues. I mean, even now today in, in uh, the age of COVID, uh, COVID-19, where people are debating how do we balance certain rights of individual liberty versus rights to protect the health of the population? And what happens if a majority of American citizens um, believe that one certain answer one answer to this problem is going to, you know, just temporarily overrule the rights of a minority group of, of people. Those are real questions that are still at the heart of of democracy that even if we don't really acknowledge them as problems, are real implications of how, you know, our system governs itself. Yeah. And I guess that also is reflected not just in a religious context or like you said, even like or like the con- the current uh, COVID-19. I was thinking about um, groups like the group led by Ammon Bundy, who aren't necessarily mm-hmm. claiming rights as a, as a religious group, but they're saying, I interpret my personal liberty this way and therefore that's how it is. And, you know, they, you know, so there's this constant struggle between the majority and the the smaller group who says, well, this isn't how I envisioned American democracy to be. 
Right. And if anything, the story tells us about the malleable nature of our patriotic legacy, because Mm -hmm. even with the Mormons, even at the point where they are proposing a theocracy and replacing the U.S. Constitution, they're still claiming that their system is a fulfillment of the American promise of liberty, because that that patriotic hue is so significant to our rhetoric that that you have to attach it somehow. And and ever since then, we haven't moved away from that dynamic. Even now, you get these people at, at complete opposite ends of a political spectrum, but each are claiming the, this patriotic legacy, that they are doing the fulfillment of America's democratic tradition, uh, even if we never really define what that tradition means or implies. I have to wonder... Like what the Mormons at the time were thinking as as Nauvoo, because Nauvoo is really this, this culmination of so many things. I mean, the Saints have been kicked around, kicked ac- you know across a third of the country by that point. You know, Kirtland failed; they couldn't stay in Missouri. They eventually go to Quincy, and they can't handle them there. They get to Nauvoo, but we also see that doctrinally, uh, theocratically, things changed a lot during the time of Nauvoo. But I have to wonder how it must have felt for the saints because they're they're arguing you know we need to be protected by the united states at the same time especially in reading the book it seems that they were taking fairly strong anti-democratic measures within nauvoo and then at the same time expecting the the full protection and recognition and respect of the broader democratic system yeah and in a way a lot of the Nauvoo's activities and the actions uh, by Joseph Smith and those closely around him, um, they believe that they're only arguing for their rights inherent in the democratic system that they feel is not being preserved. And when they feel like that's being challenged uh, or when they feel their vision is being impeded, they take increasingly desperate uh, and radical responses. Um to a degree, they they believe that they're kind of in a in a survive and advance game. That they that especially when the walls seem closing around them, they are going to take whatever is necessary to preserve their rights and to protect their their uh their community, which is going to be seen in turn as quite radical outside. And so, perhaps one of the things that struck me uh, so deeply about researching this project is the same dynamic that we find within Nauvoo of where they believe the democratic system is failing them and radical solutions are necessary to save it. That same dynamic is felt outside of Nauvoo by those who are worried about Joseph Smith. The, The mob that marches on Carthage jail in 1844, they too believed the democratic system had failed them. They too yeah, believed exactly, that yeah. that the political system had proven too malleable and politicians were uh, too unwilling to step in and restore judge justice. So that's why I see Nauvoo as a moment of democratic crisis, because both sides in the end conclude that justice is better preserved in their own hands rather than existing uh, democratic institutions. Yeah, and there were some really interesting ways that that played out. One of the ones that really stuck out to me was uh, when you were talking about the, the the trial for the men who were you know put on trial for the, the the murder, the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. And you said the jury concluded that the five men could not be convicted for merely fulfilling the wishes of an entire community. And just that just struck me like this is not that's not justice. That's not rule of law, at least as we currently conceive of it. And I just was like, how could a judge? possibly uphold a verdict like that but like you said i I think it's just that people felt disenfranchised and that this was a way to say no we're taking back control of this system and even a jury of his peers (laughs) of these people's peers were able to conclude well yeah they killed him but eh, the community wanted it so it's fine 
Right. And I think that anxiety of what does it mean to bring justice by a jury of your peers was at the heart of this issue on the Mormon end. You you ably describe uh, the, the non-Mormon end and how they're interpreting justice and why a number of those who killed Joseph Smith got off scotch-free. Um, on the Mormon end, they start interpreting the law, especially the process through which someone can gain a writ of habeas corpus, in such a way that made Nauvoo the final arbiter on all arrest warrants that are issued outside of Nauvoo. Because they believed, um, where is the justice when Joseph Smith can be charged with the crime by an anti-Mormon community outside of Nauvoo, where he's not going to get his uh, his fair trial? No, instead, for if we're going to have a true trial of our peers, every award arrest warrant for someone who lives inside Nauvoo has to first be vetted by a jury of their peers, which is a Nauvoo court. And so they say when Joseph when there's an arrest warrant for Joseph Smith, the Nauvoo court for has to try its merits. And if they pass, and spoiler, it never does, but if it passes, then we know that it's a fair uh, arrest warrant that can get a fair trial outside of Nauvoo. Well, yeah, I mean, you even said there was this part where you mentioned that, you know, Missouri was still after Joseph Smith for some time after he left. And uh, and they sent some men to try to take Joseph, to try to extradite him. Um, but like you mentioned this, that the Nauvoo would pass this rule, not just that they had the rights to issue writs of habeas corpus, but you know, as you just said, that they could even not just do this within Nauvoo, but for anyone outside of Nauvoo. And so they could even arrest someone who came to arrest Joseph Smith. And if they were found guilty, imprisoned for life, and they could only be a governor's pardon would not free them. Only the mayor of Nauvoo could pardon them. And the mayor of Nauvoo was Joseph Smith. Yeah, I see nothing wrong with what you're laying out there, Jeff. That seems, <laughs> that seems perfectly fair well, to me. And, and, I, and I feel like... um and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the book almost flows in the sense that they're sort of the political foibles of the saints and a lot of their political activity and block voting and a lot of that that I'm sure you can you can talk about. And then eventually things sort of pit, and then people were very tired of that. They were tired of the, the Mormons apparently just sort of acting outside of the law and doing whatever they want. Like I get that. If I if if I felt like I had great just political civic grievances with a group and they just kept passing their own laws and doing whatever they wanted like outside of the system. I too would grow very frustrated as a neighbor. And then I, I think that you have that. And then when you pile polygamy slowly leaking out on top of it, it seems like that's sort of what the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. When I set out to write this project, any historian writing on any topic is going to have framing questions, questions that, that guide how they do their research, uh, how they're interpreting and how they're going to write the story. What's the structure going to be? And those questions can often frame the type of, of, of arguments you make or lessons that you, that you try to tease out. And one of the questions that drove my research and writing here was what made the Mormons so threatening? What made them so what made them so dangerous to the point that a group of non-Mormon neighbors in the neighboring town of Warsaw, who otherwise in the rest of their lives were uh, law-abiding and peaceful citizens, what leads them to create a mob and march on Carthage jail and kill Joseph Smith in cold blood? Now, in a lot in LDS tradition, that's an easy question to answer, right? They were demonic, they were bloodthirsty, they were evil, they were threatened <laughs> by, yeah. Yeah. by you know the 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 prophet. Um, but I think that's a tougher question to answer because what motivates them? That that's hard for us to actually sympathize with. So what I try to do in the book, as as well, I mean, I try to do this for the Mormon side. Why did they decide these radical actions were necessary? But I also wanted to present 
Why did this seem as so threatening? What led them to believe that their only recourse to justice was extra legal lynching? Um, and to do so, I think we needed to tease out that it really seemed in their eyes that Joseph Smith was above the law, that his community was not following not just common cultural expectations, but the legal structures that are meant to keep peace and prosperity. And unless we are to root those out, those problems are going to lead to an even bigger crisis and potentially a civil war. And they're... Uh, machinations at, at the at the polling, their petitions to the federal government, their cozying up with local politicians, and eventually establishing a theocracy is all the driving political factor. And then when rumors start creeping out of polygamy, then it's not just you know evidence that these are a radical group of fringe uh uh heretics, but also that they're uncivilized. They're, they, what they're doing in Nauvoo is not American. It doesn't fit into our American culture, which heightens the anxiety over the threat they pose all the more. Yeah, it, I appreciate that you bring the complexity to this. I was talking about this with my wife earlier, that it's it's not just a Mormon thing. It's not just a religious person thing. I think just as humans, we like to like try and simplify things so that we can understand them, kind of categorize things. And we like to say, you know, it's black or white or, you know, it's good or it's bad or whatever. Like we try to like, he's a, he's conservative or he's progressive or whatever. And I appreciate you bringing the complexity that, I don't know, just that we can't just say Joseph Smith was this way and that his neighbors were that way, that we have to recognize that there was give and take and push and pull in both directions. And it, and it created an extremely complex situation that played out in a very complex way. So I, I always, it, it's almost like, sorry, Jared, it, it's no, almost it's, like issues. Yeah. It's almost like issues are nuanced and we shouldn't, <laughs> we shouldn't have a zero sum approach to them. You know, who knew? Uh, and you get a lot of that in, the, in reading this book. I want to say that I develop empathy per se, for the other residents of Illinois, but it's it's important to understand that you kind of get more where they're coming from. Because that's a great question you posed. Like, what was threatening about the Mormons in the first place? If they were just there living their lives, who cares? Right. right? We but, have, but we have crazy religions that crop up all the time in America, but very few of them lead to an extermination order or forced expulsion at gunpoint. Uh, right. So what was it that made the Mormons different? Well, right. Okay. Th- th- this is a bit not the book, but I'm curious just in your view – so you mentioned expulsion from Missouri, which this book starts off with a little bit, but the book is about Nauvoo. Um, obviously, we're talking a lot about the political and a lot of the main issues and the uh, especially the charter of Nauvoo caused problems there with the neighbors in Illinois. What do you think were the main issues then with the Latter-day Saints in Missouri? I'm going to ask you to sum that up in, you know, like one simple answer, a very complex topic. But but it seemed like it was a bit of a different thing in Missouri. What made Missouri different from Illinois? Yeah, I think in Missouri, there is just a, a uh, there's a lot of complicated things going on. But I think at the root was different uh, uh, understandings of how the saints were to fit into Missouri's political culture. Were they to be segmented, isolated in their own community and not interact with everyone else, which is why they established their own county, similar to how they're establishing Native American reservations at the same time? Or are the Mormons going to be able to have the liberty to participate uh, in the political system outside of Davies County? And I don't think it's a coincidence that the first major skirmishes in the Mormon-Missouri War uh, took place when Mormons showed up to vote in counties outside of their designated Mormon county. Uh, And so I think to 
there, there's just such a big clash of cultures between Missourians and the Mormons that they believe that the two bodies could not coexist. And if the Mormons aren't going to segregate themselves uh, to their own circle and not participate, then the only other possibility is bloodshed. And you do play uh, Missouri and Illinois off each other a lot in the book. And I think the contrasts are interesting. It seems that when we went to Missouri, you know, we felt inspired to do so. But Missouri itself was uh, more savage in a way, <laughs> in terms of just culturally and politically, whereas Illinois prided itself on being more advanced. And and it wasn't just cultural. I mean, these, they competed with each other economically. Of course, they're both on the Mississippi River. But it really seems that the Saints thought they had s- some sense of salvation in Illinois because the people in many ways... I wouldn't say they were kind of more like what they were accustomed to in New England, because I think a lot of early Latter-day Saints were accustomed to a certain culture and way of life in New England as far as just decorum and things like that. But it seems Illinois was offering perhaps more of that, at least in the very beginning, and Missouri was just ruffians. Oh, very much so. I mean, these these two states were rivals back then. They embody the two possible trajectories of westward expansion. I mean, because in the 1840s, Missouri and Illinois were the frontier. And they were the two different examples of what the frontier could mean. Missouri was the slaveholding, demotic, uh, Jacksonian type of, of era where they believed that, you know, majoritarian culture is supposed to dominate. Illinois was supposed to be the, you know, the free state. They, uh, for the most part, did not have slavery. And they believed that they could incorporate all these different diverse views. They were supposed to be an example that you don't have to be a Missouri to flourish on the uh Western frontiers. So when they got these group of, uh, of beleaguered refugees who were kicked out of Missouri, at first they're like, this is our chance to prove that we're better than Missouri, that we can assimilate uh, the group of people that Missouri failed to. Um, but beyond that very uh, compassionate uh, type of approach, there's also a lot of pragmatic things going on in Illinois as well. Um, they're a state, whereas Missouri is dominated by one party, the Jacksonian Democrats. Illinois is nearly equally divided between uh, the the Whigs and the the Democrats. And so both political parties uh, in this very important state that's going to, you know, represent the future of America, these parties are vying for control. And here comes these Mormons who are uh, gathering in great numbers. And due to recent legislation that liberalized the voting laws, there's going to be thousands of Mormon votes in Nauvoo. And so they're going to have a number of important elections coming up, and those Mormon votes could be decisive. So you have politicians from both parties tripping over each other to try to court the Mormon support. And in return for the Mormon support, they're going to grant Nauvoo extensive political and legal coverage in the first few years that they'll later come to regret. But at first, the Mormons think, this is great. This is our chance to finally have control over our destiny because the politicians, for once, are forced to listen to our interests. Now, Eventually, that's going to fall apart. But at the very first, they thought that Illinois, thanks to all of these both ideological and practical circumstances, was the perfect position for the Mormon experiment to flourish. Can we go back um, a little bit to, you you mentioned that one of those things that divided Illinois from Missouri was that Missouri was a slave state while Illinois was a free state. But you pointed out in the book that, that, you know, so it should be illegal to hold slaves in Illinois, but there was some limited slaveholding in Nauvoo. So first of all, how was that possible if, if Illinois was a free state? And second of all, what what, what are the repercussions of that, of, of, of seeing saints 
uh, who are holding slaves. How did that, how does that affect Nauvoo life? How does that affect uh, the rest of church history? Yeah. So first on the legal context, when, when Illinois uh, abolished slavery and they abolished slavery from the very start of their incorporation, but it was a gradual abolition, which was actually quite common in a lot of these states in America to where it said, uh, if you have slaves in the state, you can keep those, those who are enslaved, but eventually at a certain age or at the next generation, they will be freed. So there's a number of early settlers in Illinois who, uh, are kind of grandfathered into the law. There's also an issue of if someone moves to a state and brings uh, enslaved people who are considered their property, how long do they have before they have to sell them? And those laws were quite loose. They were they were uh, not fully understood. So what you get is a lot of people moving, not a lot, but, but you know, a, a considerable amount of people moving to Illinois with their uh, human property um, and just kind of taking it slow before they sell. And that's probably the majority of the case of, 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 of the, those who own, uh, slaves in Nauvoo. They convert from Southern states, move to Nauvoo, and they just don't, you know, get around to actually selling that, uh, their property once they arrive in Nauvoo. And then you just have the issue of governance and, and oversight. Um, yeah, Illinois has these laws on the books that outlaw slavery, but they're not really doing anything to enforce them because the numbers of those enslaved in, in Illinois remain rather small. It's not seen as a as a major uh, problem. So you're able to get away. And that's why a lot of these uh, uh, Mormon converts moved to Nauvoo with enslaved laborers um, and just kind of get away with it because no one's really on the hunt uh, for those uh, enslaved communities. Um how that affects Nauvoo, I think, is significant. Joseph Smith, from the very start of his prophetic career, is ideologically opposed to slavery. But the extent to which he tries to uh, push those ideas vacillate over the years. Um, so it's kind of like the, the analogy I usually use when trying to talk about these anti-slavery but not abolitionist thinkers is it's kind of like people in 2020 America who are ideologically against, you know, human population and the coming global warming, but we're still flying on airplanes. We're still using gas guzzling cars. You know, I'd, I'll, I'll say that, yeah, global warming is horrible, but I'm not really changing my life significantly to kind of do that. And that's kind of how Joseph Smith and a lot of the early saints were. They were ideologically opposed to slavery, but they're not really radicalized about it, at least not yet. And so Joseph Smith would have these statements that would be seen as very progressive, saying that slavery is wrong, God wants it abolished. Uh, but he also speaks out against abolitionists, those who are wanting the immediate emancipation of those enslaved, by saying those, those people are, you know, pushing too far. They're disrupting society with their calls. And then, of course, you have some saints who don't have their qualms with slavery. And so you see with Joseph Smith and others kind of an accommodation that they're just not going to be outspoken about. In fact, when Joseph Smith runs for president in 1844, one of his platforms is the abolition of slavery. But the way he abolishes slavery is very gradual and it's going to be compensated, meaning all of those enslavers are going to be paid to release their their enslaved property, which is a, a bit 
far uh, more gradual and less radical than you'd find from other uh, abolitionists. And that's one of the paradoxes that you find in Nauvoo, that on the one hand, you have this rhetoric that's saying slavery is wrong. Joseph Smith has kind of this racial universalist rhetoric. But in reality, the practical standpoints are quite reflective of the broader society because Nauvoo, just like many other societies, also had laws against interracial marriage, for instance. Uh, and the fact that they allowed slavery show that there was a limit to that universalist rhetoric. Hmm. And, and even later on, I mean, this is a kind of a brief period in, in church history, but there was a point when the saints were looking at whether to colonize the uh, Oregon Territory or even going as far as they wanted to convert Sam Houston to the gospel and effectively take over Texas. Like this was the plan. It, it never really took off, but this was the plan. And even and, and Texas was a slave area. And it seemed like that point they were just saying, yep, and just slaveholding people will join the church. And this will just be like a churchy slaveholding territory where we will be safe and Sam Houston will love everyone. Yeah, one one of the uh, documents that, that actually still haunts me as, a, as an image is written by Orson Hyde, who is an apostle of the church and was sent on this mission to Washington, D.C. to present all these petitions for Mormon settlement. And he sends back a letter to Joe Smith saying, hey, why don't we send people down to Texas? That'll be our slaveholding Mormon community. And you know how we're struggling to raise enough money to finally build the 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 temple on the bluff in Nauvoo? Well, why don't we have our Mormon slaveholding communities settle down in Texas, have really productive uh, uh, enslaved plantations, and that'll finally raise the money to build our Nauvoo temple. Uh, nice. And just, you know, that connection between having, you know, church-owned slave plantations as a way to raise this money to build the temple, you know, it's enough to make you cringe a bit. But I, and, and Orson Hyde is just one, you know, Mormon. That's not a proposal that was accepted by Joe Smith or pushed by many Mormons. But it shows how um, these racial ideas and, and concerns about slavery are not as clear cut as we would have liked back then. Well, and I mean, even though obviously that Texas plan didn't come to fruition, we still see that the, the the attitude that Jeff was describing stayed in play at least at least somewhat into the Utah period. There were Southern converts who were allowed to bring their slaves with them and hold slaves in the territory of Utah. Uh, you know, like right. Abraham Smoot comes to mind, right? I mean, there's a building on BYU campus named after him, and he was. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, and I'll and I'll add that uh, BYU is actually doing a project right now that includes research and classes to dig into the connections of slavery, especially in the Smoot family right. and the origins of of BYU. And and I think that's a tremendous uh, a cultural uh, project that will have a lot of significance. Oh, wow. We'll yeah, find out the real reason Reed could not be seated in the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> right, but yeah, I mean, it's just to your point, and I guess again to the larger point of this conversation about uh, how history is messy. You know, obviously we know that it took a long time and it, and, and in many ways it's still taking time for the church to sort out its uh, relationship with members and, and anyone of African descent. But then, you know, even the fact of, you know, being, well, we're, we're opposed to slavery, but we're going to kind of look the other way well into the, towards the end of the 19th century. It's, it's just interesting again, that it's not as clear cut as, as sometimes I think we'd like it to be. Uh, history is a little more complicated. Yeah, if anything, I mean, I think within the LDS tradition, one of the significant doctrines or ideas is that everything's filtered through humanity, right? I mean, that's what the preface of the Book of Mormon says, that there's faults that are the faults of men, which mm -hmm. kind of implies that there's going to be any time that humans are involved that their humanity is going to be imprinted on the tradition. And I think what the story of Nauvoo tells us is that 
Mormons were people of their time. They're people of their culture, just like we are today. And so I, I think by that's that's not as big a knock as we sometimes fear to just say that someone is uh, reflective of their anxieties and concerns of the day. And if anything, that just kind of shows us how humanity works. I, I want to go back to uh, you mentioned Joseph Smith running for president. Uh, I think I think many members of the church are aware that this was a thing at, at one point or another. But I don't think uh, this is just me throwing it out there. But I don't think most know why or the background of it we just kind of throw it out there like yeah and he was a presidential candidate too boom like chest thump um <laughs> like what was behind that obviously we know the latter-day saints had run-ins with the law they started to have issues with the people but can you speak a little bit about joseph smith actual politician and what led to that yeah by the fall of 1843 um the joseph smith and the saints had burned a lot of the uh, bridges they had with state politicians. And they were worried that the political parties are no longer going to be supporting them. By then, they, before that time, they had this working relationship with state politicians where they would promise them their votes in return for, for support. But this block voting had kind of grown a bit tiresome to neighbors. And due to an eventful election in August 1843, both parties were not willing to work with the Mormons as much as they had before. And so, um, by fall of 1843, the saints are like, well, the state government isn't going to help us anymore. We need to set our sights on the federal government. So they send a number of petitions to Congress, uh, proposing a number of things, making Nauvoo a federal territory, removing it outside of state jurisdiction, sending an army to protect the saints from their neighboring communities. The federal government doesn't go for any of those. Uh, so then they decide, okay, why, if the Congress isn't going to help us, maybe the White House will, but we know the current president is going to help. But the next year is going to be an election. So why don't we reach out to all the, the leading candidates? So they write letters to the five leading candidates for the U.S. presidency and ask, what will you do to help the Mormons if you're elected? Of the five they write to, only three respond. And of the three who respond, none of them promise any support. And so the saints feel like, well, our voice isn't being listened to. And at a moment of desperation, they uh, one of Joseph Smith's counselors shout out, well, why don't we represent ourselves? And they nominate Joseph Smith for the presidency. Uh, and they run that campaign with gusto. They write a detailed platform, a pamphlet that they send to all the eminent men of America. They send out hundreds of electoral missionaries. Uh, they are going to hold a series of state conventions throughout the nation to elect Joseph Smith uh, at those state conventions and eventually have a national convention held in Baltimore, the same city that both the Democrats and the Whigs are holding their national conventions. Um, I'm not convinced, though, that Joseph Smith ever thought he had a real shot to win. Some of his rhetoric was, was very okay. uh, bomba was not afraid to be bombastic, and it's the Ron uh, Paul approach, yeah. Sure. yeah. Um, sure. But but I do think they viewed it mostly as a protest campaign to get the word out. This was a chance to to raise some PR. I mean, America has a long and vibrant tradition of these. Uh, publicity type of campaigns that are connected to presidential campaigns. And so the Mormons were definitely, you know, seeing this as a chance to get their word out. And Joseph Smith's presidential platform kind of capitalized on what they felt their slights were. He argued for a stronger federal government. He argued that Congress should be able to reach out and protect the rights of minority groups. He argued uh, that state governors and state 
constitutions need to be put in check, that the tail needs to stop wagging the dog. And he argues for this robust sense of federalism that was pretty rare in 1840s America, but is later going to be enshrined uh, due to the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments, the 1314 and 15th Amendments, that argued that the federal government was the arbiter of the Bill of Rights for individual citizens. And Joseph Smith is making that argument as a presidential candidate. And I think that that protest campaign is an important marker when trying to trace these uh, the development of political ideas in early America. Did uh did Joseph Smith ever actually make it on a ballot? Did anybody ever get to actually vote for Joseph um, Smith? They had their, you know, state conventions, which is, you know, just kind of how you have the primaries and the different political parties. And Joseph Smith always won almost by a unanimous manner in these yeah, no. state, no. as, as you might imagine. But of course, Joseph Smith dies before the actual election. He's the first uh, sitting candidate for the U.S. presidency that is killed uh, uh, as a candidate. Um, and so, so sadly, he never makes it on any of the ballots. So continue on this, on this vein of, uh, the church and politics. And, and obviously Joseph Smith declaring his, you know, candidacy for the presidency is sort of the most extreme example of this. But you spend a lot of the book talking about, uh, the, the church and block voting and sort of trying to make deals or, or try to, you know, find the, the politician that was, or the party that was going to suit them best and, and help them to survive or to, to thrive. Um, so Jeff and I were, were wondering this both if the, if, you know, so today, obviously, it, well, towards the end of the book, you, you indicate the church had kind of learned its lesson. And especially as, uh, uh, as, as Utah came closer to, to gaining statehood, they learned that they had to uh, stop being so partisan and, and they had to play ball. Yeah. Right. And so now today we have the Johnson amendment, which would obviously prevent, uh, uh, official candidacy or, or sorry, uh, partisanship coming from a body like the church. But if the Johnson amendment were rescinded, as some have suggested, would the, uh, do you think the church would go back to how things were before? Do you think we've learned our lesson? What, 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 how do you see the attitude of the church nowadays, whether it's the official position or uh, is there something else in our culture that indicates that we kind of wish we could go back to how things were? Yeah, I think the church, had, to a large degree, had learned its lesson because it has a num it had a number of different priorities over the church's existence, and one of those priorities has always been political assimilation and a chance to kind of have a bit of success. And not assimilation meaning they're not different than anyone else, but a p- political assimilation meaning that they're recognized as a, a, a legitimate participant in the political body. And they learned that the only way to do that is to accept the uh, standard separation of church and state. Now, what a lot of people might, uh, uh, they might hear that and say, well, the church doesn't recognize the separation of church and state. They still step in on a number of matters, whether it be same-sex marriage or or cannabis or suicide laws or or whatnot. But uh, what the LDS church has been able to tap into, like a lot of churches, is that while you might separate church and state, you're not going to separate religion and politics. And the the ability to step in and, and make a say on moral issues. Um, 
And there's a lot of people who take issue at how the church gets involved in those things. Um, but the thing about that is the way the church gets involved, even if it draws the ire of some, fits into a much larger tradition of how most religions get involved, whether it be uh, the Catholic church getting involved on abortion issues or evangelical churches getting involved in, in, in religion in the schools. Or you can use a host of examples to where it's not a religious leader getting up and saying, you should vote for this candidate. It, although we're seeing more and more of that today as the Johnson Amendment becomes more and more mute, moot. Um, but I think the LDS Church has, on the one hand, learned its lesson that to be able to maintain political validity and viability, they have to kind of fall into a more traditional way of getting involved. But more importantly, I think they've learned how to be successful without being more directly involved. And the way they're able to flex their muscle without, you know, stating political issues over the pulpit is a demonstration of how powerful the LDS tradition has come because the actions that they were taking in Nauvoo are in many ways an example of a church on the fringe that doesn't have uh, the influence to do things otherwise. And so that's sort of the de jure or de jure, however you, I don't know how you, I'm not a Latin guy, uh, you know, position <laughs> of the church, but then you get the de facto and, and, you know, it's interesting. We, so you again mentioned in the book when, when, when Utah was trying to get statehood, they, they had to, one of the things they had to adopt was the two party system. And there are quotes from Brigham Young where he's, you know, telling the saints, we need some of you to be Democrats and some of you to be Republicans. And obviously that uh, balance that Brigham Young originally tried to encourage has eroded. Um, a couple months ago, uh, Jeff and I actually uh, interviewed Matthew Harris with uh, talking about Thunder on the Right and showing you know the rightward swing of the church under uh, as Jeff Benson's influence. But so I, are we kind of still flirting with that dangerous block voting unilateral partisanship, even if it's not official from the church, we still see that reflected, I think, a lot in the in the body of the members. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. But I think a lot of that has to do with the broader socioeconomic and demographic pattern in which the LDS ch church falls into today. It just so happens that if you are a of a middle and middle upper class white uh, mountain west uh, background, you're typically going to vote conservative and red and Republican. And so in many ways, Mormons still like Nauvoo, uh, have a pretty expected or, or uh, a traditional way of voting. Um, but that tradition fits into a broader American pattern of voting. And so as a result, um, I think it doesn't stand out as much as it used to be because they're not voting as Mormons anymore as much as they are uh, cultural conservative Christians. True. But I think some people would take issue that they'd say, no, if you're a good Mormon, <laughs> you have to be a good Republican. <laughs> right. And and I and I have family who think that too. I mean, that's that's a common sentiment. And I think it's gone to such a degree that the church itself has grown a bit uncomfortable with how monolithic their political voice seems to be. I mean, at at two separate kind times in the last de couple decades. The church leadership has put out a statement that we wish there was a more robust two-party system in Utah. We wish there were more uh, vocal Mormon Democrats. And in both cases, ironically, it was Marlon Jensen that they kind of trotted out to speak to the New York Times and others <laughs> to kind of give evidence that we're not a monolith here and to varying degrees of success. Right. He was kind of the the little pony they'd bring out whenever they yeah. wanted to show that we had – But I hear older Rasband's a Democrat, so hey. 
Who knows? You, you got to hold out hope for someone, right? Who knows? Right, Who right. knows? Um, we haven't talked a ton about polygamy. I'd like to maybe pivot to that briefly because it does, of course, it, it becomes a very consuming issue in, in late period Nauvoo. Uh, one thing, interestingly, Fanny Alger does not get nary a mention in this book. Is there any reason for that? Well, the big reason is she's not in Nauvoo, so I, I can well, kind of skirt fine. over. <laughs> I mean, I but but to go to your issue, you're you're really going to is I I, I have a statement to where I think that Joe Smith's first plural marriage is on uh, April fifth, eighteen forty one, and that's not Fanny Alger. And and I mean, the short answer to that is I'm not an expert on Fanny Alger. I haven't dug into the Kirtland period as much as I had Nauvoo, but I do feel comfortable in saying on whatever happened with Fanny Alger, if something happened with Fanny Alger. I, I think it was fundamentally different than what happened in Nauvoo because in 1840, 1841, you get all this flowering of different doctrines and a theology of, of family connectedness that I thought was central to how they viewed polygamy that was not present before Nauvoo. So whatever it was with Fanny, Al- I, Fanny Alger, I just think that's of a different variety than what takes place in Nauvoo. I accept your response. Fair justification. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, reading this is... Uh... Man, it's it's hard not to see you're reading this from a historical point of view of Joseph Smith as being cagey and shady in many ways about polygamy in the early days. I mean, a lot of, you know, the official the church narrative we get a lot of the time is that he received the uh, the revelation about polygamy but sat on it for a long time and didn't want to implement it and was reluctant to do so. I I would argue your book almost makes it seem like he embraced it with gusto and <laughs> and, and just sort of ran forward. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I, I definitely see it more as a Nauvoo creation than earlier. Um, and one that from very early on, he saw as central to his Nauvoo mission. Now, I mean, there is a bit of a, of a slow tippy towing into it. He only takes probably about three plural wives that first year, only put scare quotes around only three plural wives that first year. Um, but within three years, it's he's accumulated, you know, over 30 plural wives. And so I, I do think it was one that is birthed in this Nauvoo context. And uh, it kind of, you know, develops a little slowly, not as slow as the, the traditional historical narratives are, but very quickly reach, reaches a crescendo. Along those lines, you know, the the Saints, the first volume of the Saints book that came out a couple years ago, uh, mentioned in exploring the beginning of this history of polygamy that um, that it mentions that quote from Joseph Smith where he said that an, an angel had appeared and th- basically threatened him with a sword that he had to take this up. I've heard other historians question the historicity of that quote. Do you have any thoughts or insight yeah. on it? Well, so two things about that quote. One is those reminiscences come much later. I mean, that I don't find the angel with the drawn sword being used at the time in Nauvoo. Um, I mean, you can dismiss it wholesale because it's people who talked with Joseph Smith, including people who were sealed to Joseph Smith, who say, who give that story. But and to a degree, I actually appreciate that story because it kind of captures the urgency with which Joseph Smith is using it. I mean, I, if an angel with a drawn sword came to me, I sure as heck would try to do what he's saying pretty quickly. Um, but in general, I don't find that as the, as the justification in Nauvoo. I try to stick as much as possible to contemporary sources, which is difficult because there's very few contemporary sources in Nauvoo. They're, they are there. And once you start looking for them, you can, you can find them. Um, but I try to stick as much as possible to those contemporary defenses. And what quickly stood out to me was that 
the the polygamy story in Nauvoo is intimately connected to the political story in Nauvoo. Now it's easy for me to say that because I had my political lenses on when I was reading these these polygamous documents, so it could definitely be me reading stuff in. I'm not going to deny that. But what stood out to me is going into researching Nauvoo, you have these two literatures. You have literature on Nauvoo, and you have literature on Nauvoo polygamy, and almost as if there's two separate spheres. But what I find is great overlap. The same justifications that Joseph Smith and the Saints are using for why they need to reject the democratic system or save it in a specific way are, to a large degree, the same justifications they're using for polygamy. That human-made systems of order are falling apart. That society around them is spinning out of control, and we need a divine priesthood authority to piece everything back together again. And that's the argument I find from the time about polygamy. Not so much an angel with a drawn sword, even if that captures the urgency, but that this is a priesthood structure that's going to be strong enough to overcome any of the trials and death and opposition that we're going to find in this chaotic democratic republic. It's an interesting way of looking at it, sort of the, the safe harbor that was polygamy for many of these uh, individuals. And, and some were never comfortable with it. There were many women who the records indicate were, you know, even, some even sought out these sorts of relationships. Uh, but one that comes to mind, she appears a few times in the book, uh, Sarah Pratt, Orson Pratt's wife, was very much anti-polygamy. I believe even later on in her life in Utah, I think she was an, an anti-polygamy activist, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she um, she leaves she leaves her husband, leaves the church and goes on an anti-Mormon speaking tour. Well, there we go. Well, she didn't. She got to go on her speaking tour. So, <laughs> sorry, Ben. Um, yeah, well, darn coronavirus and its bad timing. <laughs> but th- this story is crazy to me. So Orson Pratt had been on a mission in, in England and came back. And correct me if I get the details wrong, but I believe he heard that Joseph Smith had asked Sarah to be sealed to him, and Sarah had rebuffed him. But then that wasn't the end of it. It was so much that Joseph Smith went as far as to say, "No, no, she had an affair with John Bennett." And everybody tried to pin everything on John Bennett, who by that point was kind of on the outs. Um, I think this is a, a fascinating episode, and it really highlights the mortal weaknesses even of prophets. Uh, but what it really brings to mind to me, it's a bigger issue. Like, how do we react when, we're, when we are faced with unpleasant news about church leaders, people we have faith in? And I think about whether it's Sarah but I also think about Orson Pratt coming back because he wasn't yet on board yeah. with all of this stuff. But Orson Pratt gets back from his mission and all of a sudden he's like, whoa, what happened while I was gone? What happened to Joseph Smith? Like, how do we how do we work through that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think one of the great lessons from Nauvoo is that there's a spectrum of responses. Um, you have Orson Pratt and Sarah Pratt who react a certain way, are excommunicated, and they later rejoin the church. You have people who reject polygamy out of hand, like Sidney Rigdon's uh, daughter, Nancy Rigdon, and she leaves the church and it accuses Joseph Smith as blasphemy, and she can't uh, weather it. You have Eliza R. Snow, who's introduced to polygamy and embraces it and becomes Joseph Smith's plural wife. And you have a Eliza R. Snow Smith's parents who reject uh, these rumors and leaves the church uh, around the same time that Eliza is sealed to Joe Smith. And then you have people like Sarah Kimball, one of the founding mothers of the Relief Society, who Joseph Smith proposes to, and she says, no, go ask someone else, and then remains a faithful member of the church. 
And so I think to, to answer your question, the examples that we get out of Nauvoo is that there's no one r- right way that you have a, a degree of different types of responses. And I hope people can read this, this book and see that the Mormon tradition has never been monolith, uh, but instead you have different models of how to react to things and there's no one right way. In fact, one of the things that I try to do in the book is make sympathetic those dissenters who end up writing the Nauvoo Expositor. They were not, in their minds at least, you know, critical anti-Mormons trying to destroy the church. They believed that they were true believers trying to save the church. Um, and so I think... Uh, I, I can't give you an exact answer of how someone should react when seeing the fallibility of the leaders or seeing the church and church leaders doing something that you don't like as much as I want to be able to show that you're not alone in whatever answer you choose, that there's lots of different models, some more efficient than others, uh, but that we have a long and vibrant history of diverse voices in response to these complicated issues. So, Sort of tangentially related. And I know we're getting a little short on time, but there was a, a question I, I was really interested to get your your thoughts on. I, I noticed in your in your acknowledgments, you mentioned that uh, as, while you were writing this book, you had a you were you, for a part of it, you had a fellowship with the Maxwell Institute at BYU. And um, I listened to their podcast. I think they're great. I love Blair Hodges. I think he's a good interviewer. But they, one of the things that they bring up a lot, uh, or that Terrell Givens has brought up a lot when he's guest uh, hosted on that, that, he talks about the the mission of the Maxwell Institute is to gather and nurture disciple scholars. So I looked that up. It comes from Neil A. Maxwell, right? And he, and he gave a whole speech about, uh, about the, about being a disciple scholar. And he, and he says like the scriptures see faith and learning as mutually facilitating, not separate processes. And he kind of makes it sound like, you know, we can all be disciples and scholars at the same time, but it seems to me that, and and especially after I read a book, this book, and it, it, it seems to me that that would be a more difficult, balance to strike and what what does that mean to you and especially having spent time on a fellowship with the Maxwell Institute what does it mean to be a disciple scholar and, and how hard is it to walk that line yeah that's a great question um for me uh to be a disciple scholar first and foremost is you have to be a disciple to truth um I I think one of the great principles of Mormonism is embracing truth in whatever variety it comes. So when I write this book, um, I have a certain perspective. Um, now, I don't think being a disciple scholar means you have to write in the same vein, meaning that there, there's one way to write. Because some people think disciple scholar, the only way to do so is to write a book that is meant to ray or build the faith of those who are reading it. That's not the purpose of my book. There, there's a lot of books that are written like that, and a lot of them do good work and they serve a purpose and they're meant to do that. But I think there's also a place to write books um, that give an account that's not just to build faith, but to build historical understanding and especially to build historical understanding to those outside the LDS tradition. My primary audience for this book, uh, I wrote it in a way that I, that I hope uh, general members of the LDS church would be able to embrace, but I also wanted to write to explain this Nauvoo story to a non-Mormon audience. And I think that's also a role of a disciple scholar to be able to uh, bridge the gap between these two spheres and build understanding. And so when when I write this book, I see it as as a as part of this tradition of trying to write a faithful history um, that is not just faithful to the church, but actually faithful to the facts. And perhaps in my perspective as a historian, faithful to the context in which Nauvoo took place. Um, now, if someone were to write a history of Nauvoo, uh, 
from a different perspective to where their goal is to raise faith, it's going to be a very different book. And that's expected. History is always as much a reflection of the period it's written and the person who writes it as it is about the period that's written about. And so I think my work might be different from a lot of people who would write it from the Maxwell Institute, but I would still hope that my book fulfills the mission of trying to be fair to the church, even as it's trying to address different audiences. Thank you. I appreciate that answer. And it's a, we're going to have to call it there, folks. And it's a terrific book. We encourage you to go pick it up at uh, local bookstores if you're being bad and not social distancing. But so if you are, if you do want to social distance and order it, it's on Amazon. We'll have a link on the website. Go check it out over at thisweekinmormons.com. Um, this has been a really good and insightful discussion. Dr. Benjamin Park, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Very glad to be here, Jeff and Jared. Much appreciated. And much appreciated to each and every one of you for spending the past hour with us. Please, if you have any feedback, comments, questions, whatever you like, contact at thisweekinmormons.com. We would love to hear from you. We hope you'll visit us at thisweekinmormons.com where you can listen to these podcasts, past episodes, read our various blogs from our numerous writers, and enjoy yourself more than you have at any point in the past year. Uh, also, we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and we would love for you to follow us on those. Hit those like buttons. Be friends with us. Last two requests. If you haven't been on Patreon to pledge a dollar or two a month, patreon.com slash This Week in Mormons. Help us keep the lights on. And it's about time we asked you to please leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. Help the show get a little bit more visibility. If a bunch of you left reviews in one day, all of a sudden, we'd be the hottest show in the world. Just so hot right now. It would be great. Thanks again to Ben Park. This was a lot of fun. We hope all of you have a wonderful remainder of your week, and we'll be back with you next week with the news. So for Jared, I'm Jeff. Until then, be well, be holy, and be happy.